Hello, and welcome to Real Professional, the podcast where we talk to real professionals from around the gaming industry. I'm Jan Solstrom from DreadXP. Today, I'm joined by Henry Hoare. Say hi, Henry. Hi, I'm Henry. And also joined by, or as always, by Ted Hinchke. Hello! I'm glad to be here, as always, guys. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast that I guess I, I guess it's still technically like I run it, but Jan's is really the one running it now. So I run nothing. Uh, we're running with a kind of short crew today, but that's fine because a lower equip load means that we can roll in heavier armor. So DJ, drop that sick beat. So we usually talk to, oh, actually, I would like to start with the gamer safety update. What graphics cards do you guys have in your computers? I have a 2080. Uh, a 1080? GX 1080, I think. Okay. You ever, you know, check your, your stats? Do you have a program that checks the temperatures and the fan speeds and things like that? Are you as obsessive as I am about this stuff? I, I think I technically do, but I, I don't use it really. <laughs> yeah, I, I do not at all. Okay, so I read an excellent article. You know, graphics cards right now are expensive. That's why we all have old, outdated cards. Yeah. A guy recently purchased a 3090. That's a $1,500 card. You know, that is a that is a card these days. He hooked it up to his computer. He started everything up, and he was clocking 295 degrees Fahrenheit on his graphics card. 295 how is that that's like how did that not melt his computer yeah he didn't say whether or not it melted his computer but he i guess immediately turned everything off after he cooked a steak he turned everything (laughs) off and i was gonna say is this a kfc computer is gonna like keep your chicken warm i hope so like uh defective 3090 technology to keep your tendies super warm i mean that would be efficient but he went ahead and broke his warranty and opened up the card and found... Uh, can I get guesses on what he found inside that caused this issue? Not from Ted, though, because I sent him what this was. I I already saw this. Sorry to ruin it. I can actually guess because I don't do my job very well. Oh, okay, cool, Ted. What do you got? I'm going to guess a smaller, more, uh, less efficient graphics card. <laughs> Like a voodoo, like they shoved an old voodoo from like the mid 2000s in there. Yeah, it's and I'm, I'm going to just guess the temperature was additive because that's how temperature works. That's true. That is how temperature works. It was actually a finger glove. One of the uh, the single gloves that you put on your finger, like uh, they use them in food service if you get a cut or something. I know that from my years of working around food. Um, I guess during manufacture, they had left it inside the graphics card and it was, you know, you can't put rubber inside a graphics card it heats everything up so thankfully his house didn't burn down he got it removed initially nvidia did not want to replace his card they said you broke warranty whenever you opened the card 
But after they saw that it was someone's very old finger glove, they said, if it doesn't work now, we'll replace it. How generous. That's pretty funny that they didn't just like immediately replace it for like the factory defect. They were like, oh, if it, if it lights your house on fire again, then we'll replace it. They're like, oh, you took it apart and that broke warranty, but we're going to be bros right now. And uh, if it doesn't work now that you've removed the glove that our person left inside of it, we'll replace it. Yeah, that's kind of funny that like they're like, oh, you broke warranty. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, you sent me a broken thing. So, like, <laughs> but then again, I can actually see their side of it, which is like, how do they know he didn't open it up and put his own finger glove inside of it? How can they have verification check? Right. I think manufacturer's warranties are funny, though, because I remember back when I had like an old Xbox and um, I like sent it in because it like it's an Xbox, you know, they all broke. Um, and uh, like I was like, please don't just send me a new one because I have save files that I want. And like they just 100 percent sent me a new one. Is like, it didn't even have the same stickers or anything. Yeah, I had an Xbox 360 that uh, the disk drive started to act kind of wonky. So I called Xbox support back whenever I still believed in support for uh, companies. And the guy said, OK, take off. He's like, did you take off the cover? And I was like, yeah, I took the cover off. I can see the disk drive. And he said, OK, do me a favor. Hit it. And I was like, what? And he's like, hit it like right on the front right corner. Just just bop it. And I hit it, and it started spinning the disc. And he's like, that's a known fix. So for the rest of the time I owned that Xbox, probably another two years, I left the case off. And whenever I put in a game, I'd have to Fonzie it and just like hit the top of the disc drive to get it to run. And uh, I think that's probably the best support person I've ever talked to. Because they said it kind of conspiratorially. They're like, just, just hit it. Just hit it right there. Yep. Pop it for me. I mean, yeah, you're lucky you got someone that was willing to give you the insider tip. The insider tip is to put on a black leather jacket, turn around backwards, and just slam your fist into the disk drive. Just completely fancy it. If I, if I know anything about technology, it's that no one actually knows how it works deep down. Like, like, uh, like you don't send off your, uh, like your thing for support expecting it to be repaired. Like your Xbox 360. Like, they're not going to repair it. They're just going to send you a new one. Because they understand how to put the pieces together. But beyond that, it's like the wisdom of the ancients that has far been lost to time. It's the same with programming. I don't think anyone actually knows like what coding does. They just know how to do it by like rote repetition. Yeah, I can I can confirm that from firsthand experience. <laughs> like, how does this do the thing that we want it to do? I don't know. It's the words that you put in to make the magic computer do the magic. Exactly. I recently started an Unreal C++ course, and yeah, I feel like it's... It's like they give you the spell book, but no one's supposed to know who wrote it or like how it works. You just remember what's in it. Yeah, a lot of it doesn't follow normal logic. You have to. It's like landing on a new planet and learning a new language. It is just really alien. It is in the technical sense logic. Yes, but it's it's a very different form of logic than what any normal person walking down the street uses. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's like it's back when I was in like law school. It was like logic was a class that you took, which was like about literal sequencing of like thoughts. And it's a fun way to think about things because like logic is as a as a as a field of study in mathematics, rather interesting. And uh, computers, you know, they work on computer logic. And it is it is like it's not necessarily you do have to wrap your brain around it, of course. Like you have to figure out like kind of how the computer's thinking. But when you understand it, like it does make sense. But it is akin to learning not just a new language but like a new manner of like linguistical paradigm you know what i mean mm -hmm. absolutely so henry 
moving on from uh, the exploding graphics cards and Xbox support <laughs> telling me to beat my Xbox senseless. Um, a lot of the time we have on people that are kind of well-known out there in the indie gaming sphere, but you're more of a behind-the-scenes guy. So I want you to kind of walk the listeners through like your what you do. Yeah, so I first really entered indie dev or just game dev in general working with slash for scythe dev team known for happy's humble burger barn and farm i had played their northbury grove games and i joined their discord and just happened to be just happened to start chatting to caleb their programmer we started shooting around ideas and talking about working together and so i wound up making entity with them in like 2019 i think and i did i think my main contribution to that was level design Uh, but for the most part i'm a programmer in all the work i do even though i consider myself a designer and so i worked with them on entity their games for dread x one and two and happy simple burger barn Um, and i did some pre-production work on burger farm uh, but I I left that team before they really started working on it. Now I'm working with Jordan King slash Black Eyed Priest Games on Bloodwash and have been for roughly a year now. But you, you, didn't you work on the... Um, uh, didn't you work on the original uh, uh, Happy Sumble? Yeah, I was I was there for all of that. But what whatever so that that the interesting thing to me about um working with Scythe is that I, I actually am a big fan of their games. I mean I, I think that the first one I played was actually Entity. I played Entity before Northbury Grove because it was like free on itch and it was like kind of when I was kind of looking for potential developers loved entity I, I really love that game and I, I want to talk about it more but um you know they they have this thing where they try to um well I don't want to say try because they do but it's like kind of everything they do is this one combined universe that doesn't it doesn't just live mm-hmm. in the world of games but also in like the albums that John creates and like kind of this it's it's this really sprawling thing you know absolutely it was it was a lot for me to wrap my head around <laughs> when I started working with them. And so, what, yeah, that, that's actually what I wanted to ask about. Like, what was it like trying to, like, get... Because I'm, I'm kind of running into that problem sometimes when working on the Dread XP stuff. Because, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a savant. I'm a wonderful writer. And I create these uh, wonderful, beautiful, imaginative worlds because I'm amazing. But, uh, like, it, it's sometimes it's too much for people because it's so awesome. But, no, I mean, seriously, though, it's like... You know, when you're trying to ease people into a world, it's like, uh, like fucking Jans had to deal with recently trying to get into Warhammer for this Warhammer game he was reviewing. He's like, what's of the Emperor? Like, what's of the Space Marines? Right. Like trying to get into uh, uh, the, the Scythe world universe is like kind of just as daunting. So what was that like easing in process like? How did you kind of wrap your head around it all? Uh, I don't know if I can even say I ever really wrapped my head around it, <laughs> to be honest. But I have to compliment John here uh, from Scythe, who does who handles like all the story for the most part. His approach to figuring out the story for a game and writing was to never have the fundamental structure of a story be dependent on knowing anything else. 
or knowing any of the other games. But there's all these seeds he lays in every game that for the people who care and for the people who get really interested and want to know more can follow those threads into the other games and piece things together. But like Entity, you know, like we've been talking about, is super connected to everything else Scythe does, the albums, the other games, etc. But at its core, um, it's still digestible and kind of understandable as its own individual thing. Yeah, I didn't realize it was part of this like larger universe or even part of Northbury Grove until I had my first conversation um, with John. I mean, it's like, it's interesting because, you know, obviously I was like, oh, this is like same level. But I just thought that was like typical indie recycling levels, you know? I, I mean, yes, it was. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great lesson on reusing what you have and coming up with a good excuse for it, you know? Yeah, exactly. The The story for Entity kind of came about in a roundabout way. I think Caleb was just messing around with a prototype in that old level. And so we just wound up using it. And that influenced the story as John was writing it. Everything in games like winds up coming together in roundabout ways. Sorry, go ahead, Jans. Oh, I was gonna say I like I like to think that they just the first day they sent you like an old wooden crate, kind of like a that creep show segment. And after you pry barred it open, there was a like a leather bound book covered in coffee stains and blood that just said scythe lore, and a little note that just said you're in it now. I, I like to imagine that's how they brought you into the lore of the scythe world. It was a little less uh, dramatic or exciting than that, but I did get sent a buttload of Google Docs <laughs> um, just with tons, tons of writing and explanation. Um, John keeps like intense track of everything. Yes, uh, I've experienced a small amount of that. I did some voice work for Happy's Humble recently and just the notes that I got for context on that voice that I did yeah. was daunting. Like he's very particular about his story and how it's told. Yeah. And it is, it is respectable alone that he manages to keep track of all of it. Like he, he does not have to go back and reference. He knows everything that's going on. It did lead to some funny moments though, because in the collections, you know, like the Dreadx collections, which has two, two of the Scythe team games, which uh, I believe you worked on both of them, right? Yeah. Really awesome experience working on the Dreadx collections. Really great management, and the the games are all super <laughs> great. And what was what was I, I, we can talk about that experience later if you ever want to talk about how great that was. But anyways, uh, the point I'm making is that like both Carthank and uh, Until the End of Days um, are within this like Scythe universe. But like overall, the Dreadx collection games are like within their own universe. So I had to like that was one of the reasons why it was so important for us to keep the IPs separate. Cause the IPs within the Dreadx collections, like we publish them, but we don't own them. And so John mm -hmm. was very particular about like, okay, the story I'm writing, this is for my universe. And I was like, that's fine. It's, I can like justify it within the games, which basically the way I justified it in the first Dreadx collection is that it's like a manifestation of a character within the world's um, traumas. And the second collection, uh, I justified it as being like um, a, video recording of someone's you know like a representation of someone's uh like fantasies which is like you know it all it all kind of works in that very vague kind of anthology right. horror how does any of it work sense you know um where people aren't looking at it too hard 
but I just thought that was fun because it was like, John and that team will not work on something outside of that very specific vision for the universe they're creating. Right. And it was fun. Uh, in between Entity and Happy's Humble, there was like, God, probably like six months there where we weren't putting out anything, but we were, we mulled over like a ton, like several different prototypes. And it's fun seeing John try and, or not try, it's fun seeing John come up with ways to connect just about any possible scenario to this universe he has such a clear vision for. Yeah, I always respected that about him is that like basically uh, he's able to kind of, and it's the same, it's, it's pretty much the same thing I do, is that like I have a, a sense of the story of the Dread X collection, but realistically because we're making anthology games, I have to like be able to be flexible with that story as to, okay, well this is where it's going now because this is the reality of the next project that we're doing and the games there within, you know? Right, yeah. But I was just kind of curious, like, was there ever, like, a quiz as to, like, the lore? Was there ever some port where you're, like, making the game and it was like, oh, no, the lore has to fit this? Or was it always the case that the lore would be kind of molded to fit the gameplay reality? I don't think there was ever a scenario where we had to change anything in any of the games to fit the lore. Um, I think partly because that Scythe universe is ever expanding, it's very flexible. So do you and, prefer yeah. that style of make whatever you want and the lore will fit? Or do you prefer to have a little bit more of a structure of this is what you have to do to fit into the lore? Like, because And I will say, like, as much as people might be like, I like to be able to do whatever I want whenever I want. That's not really true. Like a lot of people, like they generally prefer to have structure, like to have some kind of guidelines. You know what I mean? Yeah, I probably have the less interesting answer of something in the middle. Like working with Jordan on Bloodwash, Jordan wrote the entire story for Bloodwash, did all the writing, but it it gives me something to work with and provide feedback on. And in general, with being creative and making games, I'm not super interested in making like direct sequels and super connected things. I, in general, would like to make something pretty different each time. I ironically, of course, say that as having only made like first person single player horror games for the past three years. But nonetheless, it never impeded uh, any of Scythe's games. There's There was always the explanation of like, the Scythe universe is so big and large, just about anything can be worked in in one way or another. Yeah, no, definitely. Sorry, Jans, go ahead. Oh, I think that's incredibly interesting how john goes about creating his worlds i also i've talked to ted extensively about he how he creates his worlds. i'm a big fan of ted and i hate to say that whenever ted's around that i'm a big fan of his work because it just makes him even more cocky and i don't know how to stop it but whenever it comes to me creating my worlds whenever i'm doing anything creative uh actually both of you are tulpas that i created to fill the roles of like world building in my life Oh, shit. It's a secret Empty Man podcast. Fuck. We're going to talk about the Empty Man for another hour. Get ready. Uh, sorry, guys. I think my internet's about to go out. I can't, uh, <laughs> can't do that. <laughs> As a bit of behind the scenes for all of the three fans listening out there, uh, we, we do a, a movie night at uh, Dread XP, which you should all come to. And uh, we watched a, a movie called The Empty Man recently. It was my fourth time having seen the film. And uh, I, I think I've come... Uh, almost a complete 180 on the film. I really liked it when I first saw it. I was very surprised by it. 
And now that I have seen it a few times, I, I really like it a lot less. So y'all can fight me in the comments, but if anyone wants to come on, I will Uva Bowl uh, with boxing except shouting matches for the empty man. So if you want to come on and defend the empty man, I will shout at you over a podcast about how I disagree with your opinions. Um, and that is how I think the world should work. I will Uwe Boll you with actual Uwe Bowling. I'll box you and then I'll go on and make a terrible, uh, just a series of terrible films. We're all, I think, I think all three of us are like empty man, uh, uh, non fans now. Right. I don't know if either of you really like this. Yes, please. No one ever talk to me about the empty man again. So Henry, the empty man, uh, I, what, what, I, how would you say the empty man has inspired your future works? Um, I, it's a good example of what not to do. This is actually a, this is actually an interesting question. I don't I don't really want to get into a tangent about the empty man, but that is actually a good question of like the things that influence us in our game design history. Uh, we usually talk point to the things that are like this is really good. This is what I really like. But just as often we're we're influenced by the things that we don't like and we don't we we like don't really want to do. So you know, in the work that you're doing on Bloodwash, which we should get into here for a minute because that's probably what you're here to promote anyways. Um, like, what do you, what would you say is your, like, the things that you don't like about modern horror? I would like you to call out six companies that you would like to uh, uh, get blacklisted from. <laughs> Never work with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you don't have to talk about specific games. But it's more like, you know, what, what, are, what do you think about the trends of modern horror? And because let's be real here. You're working uh, on Bloodwash, which is a retro style horror game uh, under the Torture Star label, which has come out with some really fantastic stuff. Um, I really loved, uh, which I think it's now called the Horror Salazar House. I think it was originally called the yeah. Enigma Salazar House. And uh, uh, Search Party, which was made by Lum, which was, uh, uh, Jans, you're a big fan of that one. Definitely more retro style horror games. And uh, so what is it about that retro style that appeals to you? I, I mean, personally, it's, you know, speaking just for me, I have the not, inter not necessarily interesting answer of just it is nostalgic. And the very literal developer answer of it is easy to make and fast to iterate on. There is just a lower barrier to entry when you have that decreased fidelity that lets me, a designer, programmer, make models and do some animations when necessary. That is a very, uh, like, even though it sounds like a middle of the road answer, it's actually like a very like salient answer. Because I think that um, the, one of the things that's like not often an analyzed, especially in like the, the popular discussion zeitgeist, is about that idea of like the, the the ease of production. I mean, it's easy to go and be like crunch bad studio evil, but like the thing is, is that it's it's very much the case that a game's success, especially in the double A and up market, even in the single A and up market, is going to be based on mm -hmm. like, graphical fidelity. You know, absolutely. And there's just a certain amount of difficulty that iteration of 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 that graphical fidelity requires. You know, exactly. There's a quote from. Uh... I, maybe not even a quote, but Raphael Colantonio, who's the co-founder of Arcane, did Dishonored and Prey, uh, said in a ton of interviews why he left, or a big part of why he left Arcane and founded, I think, Wolfeye to make Weird West a couple years ago is just how hard it is to iterate, how long it takes to make anything. Like he said back when he was making his first games, like Arx Fatalis, uh, making a chair took like 10 hours maybe, or, or an hour. <laughs> and he was making chairs and animations. 
but for like Dishonored, making a chair takes 10 days. Oof, yeah. No, it's rough. I mean, I, I definitely understand that. I mean, it's like, luckily it's it's a bit easier now because some of the, the like the assets, store assets and things like that are getting to the point where like a sole developer can make cool shit. It still looks a little janky, but it's better than it was what, 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Every, everything is gradually and continually getting more accessible. And hey, if you're uh, worried that your uh, game's going to look like crap, you can. there's like all these filters that you can put over it to make it look good. I'm not trying to say that like derisively, but like not <laughs> everyone has a billion dollars to put into making your game like hyper polished, but there's pipelines that you can use that'll give your game a certain look. Um, and thanks to, you know, a lot of really cool communities like, you know, Hansa PS1, uh, th those tools are more accessible than ever. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, going back to what I like about that like retro look in Lord of Fidelity is that even though it has like these clear inspirations, there's still a lot of room to inject personality into it uh, with a unique artist style. Like with Search Party, Lum. I love the way Lum makes their games look. They have pixel art, but he uses modern lighting and post-processing techniques that give it a really unique look. Or the, uh, yeah, uh, the, the rotoscope style of the Enigma Salazar house. Um, I also yeah, think that exactly. um, you know, something like the Glass Staircase has like a really good lighting engine in it as well, despite being uh, like, a, like a PS1 style graphics. Like he, I know that Puppet Combo tends to use like lighting engines <clears throat> that weren't around for that era because they make that era's games look better. Yeah, uh, there are definitely uh, a group of developers or a certain number of indie devs that like to stay as pure as possible to like limitations of whatever era. But yeah, I don't. I know Public Combo is not concerned with that, and I know me and Jordan are not concerned with that. Well, I think it's important because it's like you know, there's a purpose to like trying to make something that is as true to the original as possible but then there's also like what the spirit of to me of that retro vibe is like if this style had never stopped being made like um games like wrath yes. of ruin or dusk is like what if boomer shooters kept getting developed for 15 years what would they look like now you know exactly yeah more about evoking that time period than exactly replicating it so what is it about that time period that you think, I, I'm sorry, Jan's asking all the questions. I, I should let you get in here in a minute, but um, what do you think it is about that time period other than nostalgia that um, is so appealing? Because I think that, Jan's, we were watching, uh, we were on our favorite website the other day, foundfootagecritic.com, and we saw a trailer for a movie called Bad Cop. Um, and it was, it's like from the 90s and it was shot on an old VHS camera, you know, like the ones that they used for like the Blair Witch Project and things like that. Um, or even like older than that, it was like an 80s home movie camera. And there was something about it that like was more, it made the, 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 the film seem more compelling than I think the content like would actually evoke. Like it was, there was something about that presentation style. And um, I, I think that there's something to that that's not just nostalgia. Like um, watching the original Alien, on a VHS where everything's a little grainy and hard mm -hmm. to see. There's something about that, 
versus watching it on Blu-ray, which, by the way, Alien still looks great. And yeah, you can say that the Blu-ray lets you see the corners and the costumes a little bit. And you can see that it's a dude in a rubber costume going like, when he like kind of hop, hops out of the closet, you know. But there's something to be said about that overall cohesive style of that era, right? Like we all know that Silent Hill, the original Silent Hill, the mm-hmm. fog was a, the reason that the fog was in the game was because they could only render so far, you know? Right. The original Metal Gear Solid, not Metal Gear Solid, the original Metal Gear, uh, the reason that it was a stealth game is because they couldn't render more than one bullet at a time with all the other objects on screen. And it's like, oh, so now we have a stealth game. So there's something about the limitations of the era creating design decisions that lend themselves towards certain mechanical realities of the game. So what do you think it is about utilizing those mechanical realities, even with those limitations no longer being the limitations that they are? Because you're talking about like, it's easier to iterate, which is true, but there's also, you can do more now with two people and unity than you could with 12 people 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. Um, And I think you touched on two things there between like the look and the design of stuff from that era. And look-wise, I think the best way I can describe it is that it feels more sincere. You know, if you look at something that is just extremely polished um, or something shot on a super high-resolution modern camera, it, at least for me, almost hits Uncanny Valley. I mean, especially in games where a lot of the photorealism stuff is in the Uncanny Valley nowadays. Um looking back feels more sincere and design wise maybe also more sincere with limitations you you are not making anything you want because you don't have limitations you're not just making any cool thing that comes to mind and going crazy making a huge mmo rpg open world game on the playstation 1 you had an idea and you had to figure out what was most important about it in order to get into the game. I I would say from my perspective about the the feel of that that VHS camera feel and I, yeah, we watched that um Bad Cops or whatever trailer the other night. Part of it um for people our age i say our age i don't know how old you are henry and uh i'm not gonna start knowing now but i'm gonna <laughs> assume i'm just going i'm going to assign you an age you're 31 same as me and same as ted Ooh, super off. um you're 31 same as ted and i uh no arguments there and yeah i'm 23 31 year old henry whore everyone <laughs> great guy um whenever you look at stuff like a vhs camera I think part of it is a little bit of voyeurism. It uh, We kind of associated that, at least me in my life, you know, a child of the 90s and the early 2000s. We always associated the VHS camera with home movies. So whenever you take something like September 1999 by, um, Ted, help me with the developer here, 98 Make, look at something like that. You get this feel of you're watching something that you shouldn't be. Like it's a little bit taboo whenever you're watching something on vhs and i think that's why the vhs filters on a lot of these ps1 horror games ps1 style horror games uh is effective it feels like raw footage unedited something that isn't ready for public consumption but you the player have been granted it and it's a little bit of a thrill for people i feel and uh 
100 percent. just that whole yeah that whole era is it's just a strange place that we have this big wellspring of you know guys like henry who are 31 going on 23 um that didn't even live in that time period but can still appreciate that aesthetic so henry i'd like to know like like how does it hit you compared to how it hits me you know because i grew up on vhs cameras right i mean similar to what you said and i think we were i think we're in agreement and i don't think there's much difference between me saying sincerity and you saying taboo so when I say sincerity, I mean it feels personal. It feels like someone else's sincere experience. If we're talking about movies like found footage, um, like you're being let in, and it's something that wasn't necessarily intended to be presented to a large audience. Something that was really for personal consumption. And so when you have when you throw that filter on a game or a movie that's modern but has that look it it feels more sincere and personal just from evoking that era and and to ted's point about you know what if boomer shooters continued to be made you know for 15 years up till today i think developers like dave Samansky and the person that made ultra kill i only have so much room in my head for developers names i'm sorry um, akita i think there we go i i think that they are showing exactly what would happen if they just continued developing those. I'm loving the renaissance of indie horror, PS1 style horror and boomer shooters at the same time. I feel like a kid again, which is, it's just nice. It goes back to no frills gameplay. And it, and we talked earlier about a game looking good. A game does not have to look good. Um, have, I know you have Henry. Have you played the summoning by Jordan King, Ted? Yeah. It, and I, I, I mentioned this, I wrote a uh, pretty big retrospective about Jordan's games. The summoning, visually, it's not real. It's not like real life graphics. It's not Uncanny Valley. It's just a simple kind of 8-bit. But the story and some of the visuals in the, like the hand-drawn style elevates the whole thing. And I think we need to focus more on substance over style. And I think we're going in the right direction indie games wise. Actually, I, that's a pretty interesting point. I was actually just thinking about this after, uh, you know, some of the stuff that Henry said. Um, there was a piece of advice I got a long time ago, which was that um, everyone's so obsessed with being doing something unique that they rarely think about doing something well. And um, I think that well, I can speak a lot about that. Sorry, yeah, I keep going. <laughs> I know, right? But I think that you know, it's interesting because in the indie crowd, you kind of have both both handfuls of that, right? So, like, one of the things about these classic mechanics, more so than just the visual style. The classic mechanics of something like Resident Evil's inventory system or save system or things like that is you're going back to something that you like. And what you were talking about, Jans, with the genuineness of it, that it feels authentic, is that basically people are using these mechanics because they authentically liked them. They're doing something because it's good and they might be trying to be a little bit, you know, edgy by going, ah, I hate new mechanics. Let's go back to the old ones. But the ones that do it well usually have some kind of iteration on that mechanic to make that core mechanic better without trying to be like so unique about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also you're going to run into situations where people are taking the wrong thing away from like the games they've played. Look at the proliferation of Dark Souls alike, Souls like games. Um, some people get it dead mm -hmm. on. They understand. 
a lot of people look at Dark Souls and they say, oh, it's incredibly painfully difficult. I should just make my game insanely hard and then I can say it's like Dark Souls. And they miss out on Dark Souls was a cohesive whole. You had the dark fantasy setting. You had the environmental storytelling. You had the well-designed enemies. But they laser focus on that difficulty. And you run into that sometimes with indie games. And I play a ton of indie games where uh, a lot of people just equate VHS filter with spooky. And they say, that's all I have to do. A VHS filter. I don't have to put a lot of work into it. I'm going to hyper focus on this aesthetic and, you know, miss the forest for the trees. Yeah, most definitely. I think that people sometimes get obsessed with an aesthetic because it's an easy thing to grab onto, you know? Like, it's easy to, like, look at an aesthetic and go, oh, I like that, than it is to, like, actually develop uh, opinions on, like, the mechanical complexity or the, uh, 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 you know, the, the storytelling elements. It's, it's very easy to, to adopt a visual personality rather than a, like, more comprehensive personality. 100%. And, you know, maybe it's because I am a writer, but I think if your game has the writing as its backbone, you can kind of just go wild with what you want to do outside of that. I just love a well-written game. I don't care if it's like a single square. It could be the uh, the Google no internet Tyrannosaurus jumping over cactus games. If you added a good backstory, million copies, day one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. So anyways, um... Yeah, kind of uh, tell me how this all relates to Bloodwash, Henry. <laughs> well, you heard me mention that I've only worked on like linear first-person horror games uh, for the past three years. And I, I'll tell you, I am I'm pretty sick of working on linear first-person horror games, so call me out on it if you see me making another one after Bloodwash. And what you're saying is that Bloodwash is the best one, so you, this is the pinnacle, so you need to move on to other things, because this is the best. I do think, I mean, obviously biased, as it's my own work, but when Jordan brought me on for Bloodwash, it was going to be a very quick and short, linear first-person horror game with like a little bit of story. Very, like, pretty, pretty standard stuff. And as i started working on it it kept getting bigger as jordan and i kept on coming up with new ideas and expanding it and so on but it was it was a design challenge to think like okay how do we how do we open this up and make it make it more interesting but stay in the scope of this you know walking sim horror game basically and i i'm pretty happy with where we landed i think we wound up with something good there's it's pretty open, or as open as open as you can make that type of game without doing a crazy branching narrative. And that was the challenge. And that was me inserting everything I like about games into Bloodwash as much as possible while still being able to release it in this lifetime. Uh, we have, like, the main section of the game is you doing your laundry. You can figure that out from the name of the game. And it's in this little plaza, like a suburban strip mall almost and there are various npcs around the area and items to discover and you can piece together a story about what's happening with this killer that's on the loose you can find bits of evidence or items related to that and bring it to npcs and get there and see what they have to say about it so opening it up and making it a little bit more dynamic or player driven was 
I think pretty much the best we could do. <laughs> Henry, that that killer. What what's their name again? Wow, <laughs> the killer in Bloodwash is named the Womb Ripper. Now, was that a was that a committee decision or? I think Jordan already had the name when I came on, and I like it. I think it's funny. It's very 80s B-horror movie, uh, which is exactly what uh, Bloodwash is trying to evoke. It, um, I will say that it is effective. Whenever you talk about Bloodwash, someone goes, the game with the womb ripper. And you go, yeah, exactly. the game with the womb ripper. And uh, for me, it was very evocative of stuff like the New York Ripper. You know, just, yeah, like you were saying, very 80s. Uh, I just... I deeply love that he had the the gall to just be like, yeah, the bad guy's called the Womb Ripper. Do you have an issue? Exactly. It's just a, Funnily yeah. enough, we did have someone not want to work with us because of it. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, I it's one of those things though that it is like the bad guy though, right? Like it's so funny though because in the modern discourse, it's like if you make a like a movie like The Joker where they're like you're glorifying the bad guy, how dare you do that? And then if you do something like completely in the opposite direction, you're like the worm, the the bad guy is the womb ripper. They are a bad guy. They're like how dare you do that? It's like do you want the bad guy to be bad or do you want them to be sympathetic? You got to pick. <laughs> did you let them know that the womb ripper did not actually work at the company so they were good to go? I, I did my best to understand uh, their personal reasoning, but it wound up just being like, all right, like that's that's your call. You know, I can't force you to work with us. I I do understand why someone would not want to work on that. And but I also like I don't necessarily agree like I would I would. But like that being said, I, you can't force anyone to work on something, you know, it it did make me take a second look at it and think like is is there anything offensive here and i checked with like family and friends and specifically friends like from women and marginalized groups and all that like am i am i out of touch like i'm a i'm a straight white guy like i could totally just not be picking up on that being a huge issue but every everyone i talked to was like no that's not like inherently offensive and like the people I talked to, I gave like spoilers about the story that give a lot of context and stuff. And that reassured me. But to each their own. It's one of those things that I, I get it. You know, you're not going to get every single person on the same page. And if they don't want to work with you, they don't want to work with you. It's fine. There, there will be projects for that person. And that's you know, everybody has a preference. I like to imagine that you got together a boardroom and, and just sit down. You flip over the whiteboard. It just says Womb Ripper bad. Uh, <laughs> just just consulting. Is the Womb Ripper bad? But I, I definitely see where someone could see that out of context or even in context and say, I don't agree with that situation and I don't want to be a part of it and more power to them. You know, that's something that Jordan... And you should expect whenever you have someone named their womb ripper, some people are not going to like it. Yeah. Um, I was going to give a quick anecdote. Like after that experience with that, um, that friend of mine who didn't want to work with us, I shortly after that, I went to like one or two games industry gathering, like social zoom events and, you know, introducing myself, talking about what I'm working on and people ask about blood wash. And I like hardcore, hesitate and pause like 
do I explain, do I say Womb Ripper? Do I really say what this game's about? Or do I leave it super vague as like, oh yeah, you know, there's a serial killer, you know, standard horror stuff. I think that we're in a very, um, it's interesting because like history, it rhymes, you know? Uh, uh, just like just like uh, Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars, it rhymes, I think is what George Lucas said. But uh, basically, uh, you know, we back, the, so the, the, the films that Puppet Combo is trying to, with his label and stuff, and a lot of that style are trying to, and, and I, I say I use him as an example not only because he worked with them because he, he genesis a lot of this genre, um, are and I think that he'd agree is like a lot of it is inspired by those '80s era films, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to note that at the time that those films were coming out was also uh, like the a, a similar time as like the Satanic Panic, um, right. where like films were getting banned for being too gruesome, and it's interesting because it's now kind of like so quaint almost to look back and be like they were banning films because they thought they were going to turn people into Satanists like WTF and it's films like Cannibal Holocaust and mm-hmm. um, some of them are like just like silly you know 80s slasher films you know Cannibal Holocaust is pretty shocking in a couple of places but some of them are like I think like Chopping Mall or something like that is like on one of them um, God I love Chopping Mall yeah it's like these like films that kind of got you know banned for being too shocking and then, you know, everyone calmed down and now you look back and you go, oh, ho, ho, isn't it so funny? But like we really like we're, we're kind of back in that mindset where like a lot of games, horror games are like, well, you can't have that shocking of content because, you know, this and that reason. And, you know, the, some of it gets rather tame because they're afraid of offending audiences because of like this new wave of moral panic. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see in like 20 years, you know, that whole thing about you know, uh, I refuse to work. Like, you know, if, if that person, I don't know who it is, like gets interviewed in 20 years, like, yes, I refuse to work on that game because it was just so gruesome in some <laughs> documentary about it. And then we're looking back and going, gosh, grandma, like grandpa, I, I don't want to assume the gender, gosh, grand person, like so quaint of you to like, you know, find that to be so offensive. And it's just interesting to me, you know, because I, I think about that, uh, that a lot, like the cycles that kind of culture goes through. I like that you're positing that we are in a new video nasties era. And I, I fully agree with you that in 20 years, whenever they're doing the documentaries, people are going to say, oh, I didn't work on that. And they're going to cut to Bob Shea, who's somehow going to still be alive. And he's going to be like, oh, I had to make it. If you guys aren't familiar, Bob Shea produced probably your favorite 80s slashers. And he's in every single documentary about said slashers, talking about how he's a visionary for like green lighting and producing these horror movies that everybody thought were like obscene you know you look at the texas chainsaw massacre it is a relatively bloodless movie compared to everything that came after and it was wigging people out so i think that the games of this era will be seen as quaint whenever we have like full vr experience the actual pain of getting your arm cut off in resident evil 15 i think that we'll move on to greener more violent pastures bob bob shea is the the founder of new line cinema Nightmare on Elm Street okay. and stuff like that. Yeah. He also uh, produced Lord of the Rings. Also a hyper-violent slasher, Lord of the Rings. Of also course, yeah. uh, Alone in the, the Dark. The worst of them all. Not the U.A. Bull film, the 1982 Alone in the Dark. <laughs> Which is based off the U.A. Bull film. Uva Bull wrote the script when he was uh, just a wee lad. How old is Uva Bull? Is he old enough to... Well, I guess if 1982, yeah, Uva Bull, I think is probably in his 60s now. He probably was, a, was alive during that era. All, all I can say 
uh, RE Bloodwash is that I'm excited. I like Jordan's work. I like Henry's work. I think that it will be a good time. And if you have an issue with the Womb Ripper, maybe you guys can... Henry, you're an accomplished programmer. Maybe we could get a name change filter in there that would call him like the, the Room Whipper or something. That, you know, I'm so glad you offered that idea. I'll have to, I'll have to send you a check later. Thank you a name you could just take it out like it would be an empty space it could be like i don't know like he's like the empty man or something like that oh my god is the womb is the womb ripper a tulpa y'all can we can we solve can we solve this now have we created the womb ripper by talking about him too much oh man it looks like my internet's about to go out again well henry we're coming up on the end of our hour um this has been a fantastic talk. I love sitting down with people for the whole three times that I've hosted the podcast so far. It's been very enlightening. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I just think that it's it's going to be a good time. But do you have any socials you want to plug? Any projects you want to plug? Any uh, stand-up sets? Um, are you maybe hosting a convention for like crocheters? What do you got? Mm, nothing that exciting, unfortunately. Um, but you can wishlist Bloodwash on Steam. It's going to be out really, really soon, I promise. Um, we're in the final stretch, and even though we've been saying that for like six months, we mean it this time. If you just search Bloodwash on Steam, you'll find it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at H-H-O-A-R-E, the number eight. Black-Eyed Priests games on Twitter, Jordan King at Lego My Giallo. I'm sure at one of those you can find a link to our... Disc, uh, Black Eyed Priest Discord server, where you can come chat with us and tell us why you hate the name of the Womb Ripper or why you love it, and it's the best thing you've ever heard. And Jordan's a literary genius, and so on and so forth. I, I will ask: uh, Are you excited for uh, a little indie game coming out called Spookware? Spookware, I've never heard of it. Can you tell me more about it? Spookware is a new micro game collection uh, adventure game being created by Beeswax Games and produced by an indie production company called Dread XP. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to The Real Professional Podcast, brought to you by Spookware, the micro-game sensation taking over Steam. Buy Spookware now on steam.com, I think. Steam.store-powered. Steam.gov. Steam. It's, 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 it's actually steampowered.com, but just buy it on Steam. Everyone knows what that means. If you're listening to a gaming podcast, you don't know how to get to Steam, then, uh, hey, you know, welcome. Uh, sorry that you lost all your Roblox, little kid. <laughs> and girls you know don't want to be gender discriminatory here everyone buys games on steam so go ahead uh and i don't know maybe on the epic game store at some point we haven't talked to them yet but we probably should right spookware yeah they just they just opened themselves up a little yeah, bit yeah, august cool. august 26 2021 spookware brought to you by spookware home of spookware and follow us at dreadxp underscore the underscore is there because someone else already took the dreadxp name and that's unfortunate and you can find me on DreadXP.com every Thursday writing editorials about things like guns and the tall lady from Resident Evil. And you can also follow me on Twitter at HorrorPlayed. Alrighty. Uh, yeah, that was a good one, guys. Um, yeah, that was solid. About the Empty Man. <laughs>